you suffer from numbness, tingling, burning, or pain in your feet and legs? It could be caused by something as simple and common as a B1 deficiency. This is Dr. Ronald Hoppen with a solution for low B1. Zobria. Zobria is a safe, effective, and clinically proven nutritional supplement containing a high-potency bioactive form of vitamin B1, which has been shown to reverse symptoms caused by low B1 with no side effects. Low B1 causes your nerve cells to stop functioning properly, resulting in numbness, tingling, burning, and pain in the feet and legs. It may also contribute to forgetfulness, loss of mental focus, fatigue, and loss of appetite. Restoring proper B1 levels has been shown to improve the functioning of these nerve cells. You can get Zobria risk-free by going to zobria.com. That's zobria.com and get 20% off with coupon code Hoffman at checkout. This offer is only available to Intelligent Medicine listeners. That's zobria.com. Vitamin B1 perfected. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today we're going to take a fascinating journey uh, to visit with a survivor of stage four cancer. He's James Templeton. He's written a book entitled, I Used to Have Cancer, How I Found My Own Way Back to Health. Uh, James uh, also, uh, coincidentally, is the life partner of someone who's familiar to many of our intelligent medicine listeners because we interview her quite uh, frequently here on intelligent medicine. She's one of our go-to experts on uh, diet and detoxification. Uh, it's uh, world famous Lu- Anne Louise Gittleman. So uh, James, that's quite a distinction. You are the partner of Anne Louise Gittleman. I guess uh, uh, you and your own right, of course, are, are the author of this great book. So um, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your journey uh, and how it came about that uh, you were diagnosed uh, with a life-threatening cancer and then ultimately beat it. Well, it's nice being with you, Dr. Ron, and uh, it uh, was quite a shock to me because back over 30 years ago, I was living in Texas, and I'm a fifth-generation Texan, and I was uh, living, you know, a great life. I thought I had everything going for me and I had a wife, a beautiful wife, I had a young daughter that wasn't even two years old yet and I had several very successful businesses uh, that I uh, had built up you know from scratch and everything was just going great. I guess you could say I had life by the tail. I even lived on a small ta- uh, farm you know and I, I had a few cattle and I had a lot of nice you know things going on I guess you could say you know and uh, I I was even in great, tremendous physical fitness shape. Mm-hmm. And I was one of these these runners, like you see, running all over the place. You know, I was the guy that you'd drive down the road, and here I am running. So I was this guy that, that thought he was doing the right thing. I worked out in the gym several days a week. And uh, I was doing all this because my father and my grandfather both died at a very young age of heart disease. My father at 46 and my grandfather at 36. Hmm. And I never really knew my grandfather, but we had this heart disease thing going on in the family. And uh, my mother, she died before I was even two years old. So I had a lot of death in my family. Even I had a brother that died at the age of eight. So I had, 
you know, this death thing going on and the heart disease thing going on. And I just thought if I didn't do something, I was going to be the next one. And so when I started to uh, think about this, I read a book, and it was by a guy by the name of Jim Fix. Yeah. And uh, you probably remember him. Yeah, Jim we Fix, all re- we remember the Jim the, Fix era, you know, the uh, the guy who, who basically single-handedly launched the, the running revolution. Yes, he did. And I read his book, and he had the same thing, and I think his father died at the age of maybe 35 or something like that, and... And so Jim got into running, and he thought that he could just about eat anything he wanted as long as he ran and exercised and was in this tremendous health. And uh, and he uh, he just thought that that was going to be the ticket to everything. So I thought, well, if it works for Jim, it'll work for me, and I'll just uh, do everything he's doing. So, but you were you were running doing. you were running away from heart disease. But uh, the irony of life is that uh, sometimes the very things that uh, we anticipate, uh, it turns out that uh, life uh, uh, hits us upside the head with a two-by-four. Yes, it does. So I, I just thought that, you know, if I didn't do something, I was going to be next. So I got into this, this running thing, and uh, I, I was feeling great. I, I noticed, though, one thing. I was a little tireder, and I felt this, uh, you know, feeling every time i'd run i feel like you know well i'm really tired all the time but i'll just push harder mm-hmm. and i and i noticed i was coming down with a lot of colds and flus oh is this and, you, were, you were in your uh, 30s at the allergies. time you were in your 30s yes i okay. was mm-hmm. i was in my early 30s i was uh just feeling this and i thought well i guess it's when you get to be 30 you don't feel as well yeah. so i didn't feel as well but i was in good physical fitness shape i guess it sounds weird but but i was really uh you know, out there, you know, just 60 miles a week, on, you know, putting it in, putting the time in. And uh, so anyway, I decided that I would do what Jim did. So one day I went to the office, I grabbed the morning newspaper, I sat down, and I looked at the headlines, and it says, running guru Jim Fix dies of heart attack while jogging. Wow. And I remember that, and it just threw me almost you know, out of my chair. You know, so, so much for your sense of, of invulnerability, right? Because you thought, yes. uh, you know, as long as I keep doing this, uh, you know, emulating the lifestyle of this uh, perfect physical specimen, I'll be fine. That's right. And I thought that, uh, you know, that if Jim, you know, had died of a heart attack, then, man, I better start refiguring everything I'm doing. Maybe I need to do something else. You know, and it was a big shock to me. And I decided, though, I would go and get a real thorough checkup, and I was going to get one of these cardio stress tests, these cardiac stress tests mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that they did back then, and it would uh, maybe uh, see exactly, by doing that, let me see exactly how good a shape I was really in. So I scheduled one of these with a internal medicine doctor there in town. I was living in a small town, and there was a guy there that did this kind of thing, and I went in there, and he says, well, he says, James, he says, you're in tremendous health here. He said, I've done a very thorough examination. He says, you you are tremendous shape. He says, you broke the record in my office uh, on the treadmill test. He said, no one's ever done this well. He said, you are, are doing something right. Whatever you're doing, just keep doing it. And so I like that. I like the sound of that. And 
he says, uh, you know, you're going to live a long time uh, in this kind of shape. I wouldn't worry about the heart disease. So I felt really good on the way out of the office. He says, you know, in fact, there's the only thing I could find wrong with you. He says, there's a mole on your back. And he says, that mole on your back looks a little different than the other moles. He said, it's probably nothing. But he said, I would go and get it checked out. Mm -hmm. You know, when you get a chance, just go down to the to the dermatologist. There's one down the hall here in this building. And he says, you know, he'll know exactly if it's anything to be concerned about. But I don't think it is. Yeah, I, I know so the I drill because so often, it. is you know, I do that with patients. And I, I try to yeah. reassure them. But, you know, I have my concerns and I want to be thorough. And I, you know, just in case, just make sure, you know, maybe get a biopsy, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I... I didn't think much about it, and uh, a few weeks later, I decided to go get it checked out. So I go into the dermatologist's office, and I'm sitting there and waiting on him to come in. And he says, uh, uh, why don't you remove your shirt and let me see what you got? And he looked at that mole, and instantly, he just he just started to really talk loud. He says, oh, my gosh. He says, I think you have melanoma, just like that. I mean, mm-hmm. he didn't know for sure. But he thought it was melanoma. I guess he had seen it before. But he got very excited, and he started to go on about how we might have to remove a large portion of the tissue in my back. He says, I think this, uh, you know, is for sure melanoma. He says, uh, you know, this is something very serious here to be concerned with. And, and, you're, saying, and you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, slow down here. Right? Yeah. Because yes. it's almost like he took a delight in uh, being so uh, uh, clinically, uh, uh, you know, perfect, uh, and yet the way he transmitted the message to you kind of freaked you out. It did freak me out. He did, he had this excitement in his voice, like he had won the lottery or something. <laughs> okay. And it you really, made, it, you it made it his day. You me. made his day. Because, uh, you know, he got tired of just seeing people with ordinary sunspots. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, that was kind of like a uh, case of the month for him. It was. I, and I, I got to thinking, I guess he gets excited because he saw something, you know, that, like you say, he hadn't seen in a while. And uh, anyway, he got all excited, and I didn't like his bedside manner, and I just remember saying, look, you know, I'm going to think about this. I'll get back to you. And I went home and barely could make it home. I was just in shock and very upset. Because what's interesting, said, excuse me, excuse me, what's interesting about this is, um, you know, people who get diagnosed with cancer, the diagnosis often happens later in life. You know, that 75, they get told that they have, uh, you know, lung cancer, pancreatic cancer. Yeah, that's curtailing their longevity. But there are very few cancers that are as deadly and can strike so early uh, as melanoma, right? It, it, there's something about melanoma that's a particularly dread disease because it can hit, you know, a 20-year-old or a 35-year-old. Uh, and it can literally be your death knell. Yes. Yeah, and I, I went home and my wife says, look, let's get a second opinion. You know, let's don't just take his word for it. Let's get a second opinion. So I went in to see another dermatologist down in Houston, uh, a guy that I'd seen before. And when I got to see him, he says, well, it looks kind of suspicious to me also. He says, you know, there's only one way we're going to know. He says, uh you know, you need to have someone take this out. And he says, I've got a friend that is a world-renowned oncologist. And he says, I think you should go see him. 
and he'll know for sure if it needs to be taken out. And and he says, if you have to go to anybody, this will be the guy to go to. So I did. I went, you know, right over there in a day or two, right to see this guy. And I went in, and he says, well, it looks suspicious to me also. He says, but let's just take it out here in the office. Let's see exactly what it is. I'll send it to the lab. And so he went on, and he removed it, and he removed a big, large plug out of my back that was probably a two-inch square plug and he says uh you know i'll send it into the lab i'll get back to you in a few days don't worry go home uh there's nothing you can do and of course that's all i did was worry because Mm -hmm. the anticipation of not knowing Mm -hmm. and i was walking around on pins and needles and didn't sleep very well just like just probably most people that are that are uh going through this kind of thing so anyway he calls me up it's about you know, almost two weeks later, it was, I didn't know why it was taking so long, but he calls me up and he tells me on the phone, he says, James, he says, I've got some good news and I got some bad news. Hmm. And he says, I hate when, pe- I hate when people say that because it's usually, <laughs> it's usually 95% bad. I didn't know what he was going to say first, you know, and he says, well, the good news, he says, is that it's melanoma. That's the good and news. I'm like, melanoma's good news like that. And he goes, well, wait a minute before you, you know, draw anything to a conclusion on this. He says, listen, he says, we think we got it all around that perimeter area of that incision. He says, there's no signs of any of the cancer around the edges. So mm-hmm. we think that there's a good chance we got it all. Okay. He says, the bad news, though, he says, it's very deep. And he says, when it's mm-hmm. deep... Mm-hmm. Uh, like this, he says, we're going to have to call it a stage four. Right. So, and he says, this is a measurement that they measure, you know, on a Clark scale measurement right. on a melanoma. Yeah. So let me just explain briefly to our listeners is, uh, when you get a biopsy for melanoma, it's, it's a really tricky thing because if the melanoma is below, uh, a certain level in your skin, even if it doesn't appear to have spread, it's very likely to be picked up by the lymphatic system and carried to your lymph nodes. This statistically, uh, and it's a di- it's a difference of just a mere millimeters. And if a mi- you look at you know you hold your finger and your thumb together, and you hold them very close together, that's that's a millimeter. So a couple of millimeters makes a, a big difference in terms of it's fine. We took it out. Live you know you'll have a great life. It's gone versus you're at risk for metastatic melanoma, uh, which is, okay, it doesn't get any worse than stage four. There's one, two, three, and four. And stage four, you were already stage four, not by virtue of the fact that it had spread to your brain or to your liver, or but just because it was a couple of millimeters below the surface of your skin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he, so he went on to say that, uh, you know, we're going to have to really keep a close eye on this because this is, more likely to spread than than not and he says you know we got to have you come in every three months and we'll check you out we'll we'll uh feel feel under your arms and you know when you're growing we'll we'll check the lymph nodes out because that's usually where it goes and he says you know we'll just see how you're doing there's nothing else you can do uh you know try not to worry live your normal life Uh, there's nothing you can do at this point. No lifestyle suggestions, nothing, you know, diet, nothing, uh, supplements, no, uh, immunotherapy, nothing along those lines. Uh, yeah. No, nothing like that. So here I am. I mean, I become very, very 
upset, of course. Now I have stage four cancer. Now I have to worry, and and I I just didn't want to do anything after that. I was a very ambitious young man, mm-hmm. and I loved to uh, you know work and get go to the office and and uh, be creative and and all that. And I just got to where I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. Mm-hmm. All I wanted to do was feel sorry for myself. Yeah. So. You know, I, this went on and on and on, and I wasn't the same guy that my wife had married, and I just wasn't fun to be around, and and uh, I had started to read a little bit about the melanoma. There wasn't the internet back then, so we didn't have a, something we could look up in five minutes' time. So I started to ask around, and there was a doctor friend of ours that said, he says, I hate to tell you, but people with stage 4 melanoma usually don't live over three years. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, when he said that, I felt like, well, you know. Yep, the I statistics well, are pretty abysmal, yeah. I might as well uh, start planning the end of my life. And, you know, I just, uh, you know, and I think I had this thing that everybody in town probably thought I was, you know, dying. And, and you know, they, they didn't necessarily, but I just started to think like that. And, I just wasn't a happy camper, and uh, I went in. I went in two different times to get checked out. Everything seemed to be good. So I got to thinking, well, maybe we'll never see this thing again. And, uh, you know, so the longer it goes on, you know, not finding anything, the more you start to feel a little bit better. And But before I knew it, uh, I just, you know, my wife, I guess, couldn't deal with it, and she she wasn't happy with me any longer, and... And uh, maybe it brought some other issues up, and and she decided to move into town and uh, take my little girl. And after that, I just kind of lost mm-hmm. my interest in living. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't even care if I was going to be around anymore for a while. And I just started to, uh, you know, feel really sorry for myself and feel like my life was totally over. And started going out with some of my old buddies and drinking again mm-hmm. and trying to get get it get it off my mind and mm-hmm. you know i'd go out and drink he felt pretty good the next day he got the same problem so right. uh james so I we, we not... know that there from what you were doing at the time from the standpoint of something called psychoneuroimmunology was exactly the wrong recipe for cancer which is something that i think you subsequently learned in your career with dealing with us right yes i did and uh i you know before i knew it long story short I was taking a shower, and I found a lump in my groin, and it started to to get bigger, and I felt it. And I went in to see the doctor. The doctor says, well, it's probably okay. You might have bumped into something. I don't think we're going to worry right now. Just come back in three months. Well, I didn't know what to do other than do what he said, but, but it just started getting bigger and bigger. And I went back to him a few weeks later, and I said, this thing is really getting bigger. And he looked at it, and he says, you know, I think you're right. We need to go in and, uh, you know, remove it and see exactly what it is. Hopefully it'll just be something small, a little small incision. So he checked me in the hospital. He said, let's go in in the morning, the first thing, and let's see what it is. And he did. He went in and, get, and did the surgery. And when I woke up from that surgery, I knew I was in trouble because I had this huge, huge bandage on my growing. And I knew that that wasn't good. And before I knew it, the doctor comes in to the recovery room and he says, well, I'm sorry to tell you, he says, but the, the, uh, 
cancer has spread, it's in your lymphatic system, it's down in your lymph nodes, and we removed all your lymph nodes in that area down in that right, in the right side of your, in your growing, the whole area. He said, so we're going to have to really get aggressive now, uh, because, uh, you know, you've got, it's, it's already metastasized. And he says to me, he says, I want you to do 80 chemotherapy treatments. Hmm. And he says, we're going to do experimental chemotherapy. He said, most chemotherapy doesn't respond right. very well to melanoma. Just a footnote, uh, James, is that back, you know, back then, you know, I guess this is about 25 or 30 years ago, uh, there was no established protocol for melanoma. Everything was experimental. And chemo was kind of a dismal failure in terms of treating it. Now they have immunotherapies. They can be somewhat successful, but they have devastating side effects, the, the current immunotherapies for melanoma, the target melanoma. But then that didn't exist. So the therapies that you were uh, offered were kind of on a wing and a prayer, right? You know, very experimental, very iffy, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was just because he says, you know, this is all we know to do, and we're going to do something called hypothermia. And he says, we'll elevate your temperature. And they do that nowadays. I, I see that now that they're doing that for, mm-hmm. I don't know about melanoma. But but he says, we'll elevate your temperature, and we're going to get it up as high as we can, you know, without, you know, basically killing you, I guess. Get it, get it up as high as they can. And, you know, I'm sure it was over 105 or so. But, uh, is this an MD there. Anderson? Is this an established cancer center? Or was this? It was. Uh, a, it was down in a hospital in Houston, and it wasn't MD Anderson, but it was a hospital that uh, uh, the doctor originally came from MD Anderson. He okay. was. Uh, he had his own clinic. Because it, cause it, it sounds in innovative. I mean, hospital. it sounds innovative. I mean, they, they they just didn't know what to do then, so they said, "Okay, let's yeah, so, let's try this out." Yeah. So they started. to to, you know, that's what they would do. They would do that. And he says, you're also going to have to have a lymph drainage pump because we removed all those lymph nodes. And you're mm-hmm. going to have a lot of swelling in your leg yeah. and you're going to have to use this several hours a day. So that's going to be something you have to do. If you don't, you can lose your leg. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want that to happen. So I had to do that. So he also went on to tell me right then, he says, well, he didn't want to tell me, but I got it out of him. He says to me, he says, I think you have a 20% chance of surviving three to five years mm-hmm. if, if you can get through these chemotherapy treatments. He says, if you don't do the chemotherapy, I don't, don't know what else to do. It's probably not a good chance. You probably won't be around that much longer. Mm-hmm. And he says to me, he says, that's just from his experience, and that's all he could tell me. And he just didn't sound good to me, and I was very, very upset and I knew there had to be something else I could do. I knew that, you know, I just had to to think about and find some other way. And uh, I was there, and after a few days in the hospital recovering from this surgery, which was pretty painful, that the recovery, you know, anytime you get get a 10, 10-inch incision in your growing area and, you know, and all this fluid drainage and everything, but... I, I knew that I needed to find something, and I needed to really find something quick. And I got a phone call, and this phone call was from a minister of mine at a church that I went to from time to time. And he calls me up, and he says to me, he says, James, he says, I heard you were in here. He says, I've been praying for you, and a lot of people in town have been praying for you. 
and he says, I just want you to know you're not alone. And he says, if anybody can beat this cancer, you can. He says, you're a tough guy. I know you know how to push yourself. I know you know how to, to uh, you know, not quit. He says, uh, so I know you can do this. And he went on. He was giving me a pep talk, kind of like I was in the locker room at halftime <laughs> or something in a, mm-hmm. in a championship football game or something and this guy was an ex-baseball player so he knew how to kind of motivate and he was a nice guy and he was a runner also he was older than me but but i respected him you know uh a lot and he went on to tell me he says listen he says i want to tell you one thing he says you don't give in to this and he says you beat this sob in cancer that's exactly what he said he he used the other (laughs) term but he said that, and I was shocked because, you know, I never heard the guy talk mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. And it got my attention, and it made me start to think. And I said, you know, I am going to have to fight this. I can't give in to this because I was just laying around depressed, feeling mm-hmm, sorry for myself. Mm-hmm. And when he said that, you know, I just knew that, that there had to be a better way, and I was going to find it come hell or high water, I guess you could say. So I started to pray. I started to pray. Like, I'd never prayed in my life, uh, like a hundred times harder than I'd ever prayed <laughs> for anything. And I wasn't a religious guy that prayed every day and all that, but I'm telling you, I was desperate, and I needed to get an answer, and I needed to pray. And I prayed, and I felt like every cell in my body was praying. <laughs> and I was laying in that hospital bed, and when I got through praying, I bet it wasn't but maybe 20 minutes later, I got a knock on the hospital door. And it was from a friend of mine. He comes through the door. A friend of mine I hadn't seen in seven, seven and a half years or so from college. He comes in the door. He had these papers in his hand. And he comes in. He says, well, I was driving around the area. And he said, I heard about you in here from one of our old friends. And I feel so bad about it. And I knew that, uh, you know, uh, you were here. And uh, yesterday, a friend of mine at the office and me were talking. And he said, I read an article about a guy that cured himself of cancer using a diet and lifestyle. Hmm. And uh, he said, uh, I asked him to give, get that article and bring it to me, and I'd bring it to you. And the guy did. So that's what I have in my hand here. I have an article. And it's a book review about a guy that wrote a book about uh, his healing story. And the guy's name was Dirk Benedict. Mm-hmm. And Dirk Benedict was a guy that was on TV. He was on a TV show called The A-Team mm-hmm. back in the 80s. And Dirk was and one of the early uh, proponents of macrobiotics. I remember from yes. the beginnings of, you know, when I was practicing in the 1980s, uh, he was a figure on the macrobiotic scene. Uh, James, can I ask this? At this, this is a good point at which to pause because we divide our podcast into two parts. And I want uh, to hear more about uh, your journey. Uh, but it sounds like um, your pastor uh, put some fight back into you. And then uh, through the power of prayer, uh, a potential solution was delivered to your doorstep. So uh, let's hear in part two uh, how that played out. Uh, James Templeton's book, I Used to Have Cancer, How I Found My Own Way Back to Health. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. 